This is the Imperfect Buddha podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. So here we are back on the Imperfect Buddha podcast after a long series of different kinds of events that have taken place. And we spent quite a considerable amount of time with Daniel Ingram exploring, well, the interesting realm of speculative non-Buddhism, pragmatic dharma. And one thing that's come up in some of those conversations is the role of ceremony and ritual and other ways of approaching practice. So today I'm going to be talking to Cleo Kearns, who knows a thing or two about these topics. So we're going to shift direction, change direction, and see what comes out in our conversation today. Hi, Cleo. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. Hello, Matthew. I'm glad to be here. Great. So I'm going to jump in with the first question, because I think a fair few of our listeners might not know exactly who you are. So who is Cleo Kearns and what should we know about her? Well, uh, I am an academic scholar, a teacher and a ritual specialist, to use the anthropological lingo. Uh, People might like to know that my primary lineages are Christian and Andean, that is the Andes Mountains, the tradition of the Caro people though I have studied in Lakota traditions and in a lesser way in several other indigenous traditions as well. And I live and work mainly in rural Vermont, but I have a strong connection with Taos, New Mexico as well. (laughs) Okay, that's a nice uh, concise snippet of who you are. (laughs) And I should mention to the the skeptical Buddhist listeners that um, the first time we spoke, we managed to make some interesting connections between some of those topics, Buddhism more broadly, and uh, ritual within things like Tantric Buddhism as well. So they shouldn't feel left out, I think, from the sort of lines of inquiry that we're going to be exploring together today. I'd like to know a bit more about your current relationship with the areas of expertise you teach and study, in particular, continental philosophy, anthropology, and religion. So let's go for the first one, continental philosophy. What is it about this vast and varied field of philosophy that captured your imagination when you first discovered it? And what do you see as its most interesting contributions to contemporary thought and practice? Well, uh, I wasn't really trained as a continental philosopher. Uh, I came to philosophy through literature and religion, which is an interesting path. And interestingly enough, I came to it through my interest in Buddhism. So uh, I have a funny kind of non-Western take on the tradition, which is very odd and very very uh, productive in certain ways and difficult in others. But in any case, I first fell uh, in love with Derrida because he captured some of the elusive quality of literature in the study of philosophy. And more recently, I have really done a, a deep immersion, which is ongoing in the work of Gilles Deleuze, which is the the perfect philosophy, in my view, for the perfect lens, the perfect philosophical lens for understanding um, 
indigenous and animist traditions, which is my primary interest at the moment. Wow. Yeah, he's quite a complex <laughs> thinker as well. I mean, he's not the easiest person to get to grips with, right? Certainly not. Certainly not. It's, it's, he's, he's difficult and the, uh, and the material I study is difficult. So you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I think we can put anthropology and religion together just for convenience sake. Yes. Um, here we are talking about the academic study of them. But of course, your engagement with religion, ritual and practice is also deeply personal. Can you speak to this, this, this difference and tell us something about the meeting point between the personal and the professional in your life? Yes, well, I had embarked on about a, a five-year study of the academic literature on what is loosely called shamanism, uh, with really no intention. I mean, you know, academics, we, we like to read about these things, but we don't actually like to practice them. So I had no intention of becoming any kind of practitioner until I had a chance encounter with Alberto Villoldo, who is a, a founder of a major school of shamanism in the West. And uh, that encounter led to some interesting experiences, and those experiences led me into studying with the Four Winds, which was great for me because Alberto himself, while he is a, is a, a very renowned practitioner of shamanic healing, uh, has an academic background. So I was able to feel like I could kind of walk on both feet there, that I could, I could keep my academic approach in action and also learn a thing or two at the same time. <laughs> okay, perhaps that's Alberto on the phone right now. What do you think? That might be him. <laughs> Either Alberto or a lesser demon. So we'll, we'll have to see which one. <laughs> so one thing that became clear in our, our first conversation was that you are fascinated by religious sacrifice. This covers a whole range of different types of terrain, of course, in your case, shamanism and Catholicism. So why these two? And, and does Buddhism have a role to play somewhere there as well? Yes. Well, um, uh, it, it all comes together at various points, and then it diverges, and you have to kind of trace it through your lifetime. But I came to the question of sacrifice partly because I'm extremely interested in the Eucharist, the Mass, or what is called the Lord's Supper in Protestant traditions, which is seen as a kind of sacrificial ritual in Catholicism. Um, in fact, some people have called it one of the greatest shamanic rituals on earth. <laughs> mm. And I was interested in, um, in the theme of sacrifice in the Mass, and in particular in the relationship between the sacrifice of the Mass, as it's sometimes called in Catholic theology, and the figure of the Virgin Mary, who, it, who does not play uh, an active role in that process, but who is always there in the vicinity. And that role fascinated me very, very much. Uh, as for Buddhism, I'm, I'm extremely interested in the, um, the complicated relationship uh, in Buddhism in many, many traditions between a kind of anti-sacrificial stance of that's all falderal and it's archaic and primitive. We don't need to do that anymore. If we do it at all, we do it in an inner sense of the sacrifice of our desires or our, our attachments or ourselves and a continuing need that people have to externalize that in some way. So we are now approaching the um, 
the great question of Tantra here, Matthew, and I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, 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 might, I might force you to go there later on. But <laughs> Okay, I'm back. I'm I'm uh, fools rush in for angels fear to tread, so I'll, I'll go. I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> great, glad to hear it. So can I ask you what two important thinkers that I know interest you would have to say on all this? And I'm thinking in particular of Durkheim and Lacan. Well, Durkheim, of course, is the, the great founding father of the formal study of sacrifice in academia. And he, uh, he was fascinated by sacrifice, and he was also a great critic of sacrifice. He was a French scholar um, of Jewish heritage. He was very, very concerned about the role of sacrifice in extreme nationalism, Hmm. Uh, he was really concerned about the political and ethical side of sacrifice, but he was also fascinated with its way of working. And he is the person who uh, showed us, pointed out to us that sacrifice often uh, both mimics and reinforces social relationships and boundaries between outsiders and insiders and hierarchical relationships within society. They're both kind of mirrored and intensified uh, by sacrificial practices, which create a very strong group consciousness. And when it's very ecstatic, as it sometimes is, he called that collective effervescence, which is one of his most famous phrases and one that I I love, even though I think it's um, confusing in some ways. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And if this is, again, I'm sorry to be so simplified about it, but to, to put it very simply for, for the purposes of conversation, Lacan came along and said, oh, that's all very well, and I get the point. Uh, but what does that mean inside the individual psyche? What does sacrifice, how does sacrifice function in our development as, as conscious thinking psychological beings? And um, he was very interested in the way that sacrifice uh, both both actual ritual sacrifice and a kind of sacrificial development of, of the, the person from, um, from childhood through maturity involves a kind of sacrifice and a kind of reconstitution of a, a self that is social and symbolic um, through the process of, of actually having to let go or even kind of break with a former state or set of relationships. So uh, he took a look at the inner trajectory, as it were, of the, of the kind of sacrifice that Durkheim was tracing. And Lacan, uh, I, I honor him in particular because he was always attentive to what sacrifice costs. He thought it was essential to human development. That is, he thought we go through this as we mature. Uh, but he never lost sight of the kind of division and pain it can create. And um, so I think he was, um, he was a, a, great, a great force and a great practitioner himself. Mm-hmm. He was also a bit of a shaman, so. <laughs> right, I wanted to say, yes, he was, uh, he was many things to many people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and another, another difficult Frenchman for a lot of folks to get their heads around. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about ritual then, because I think we have to go into some of the the nuts and bolts of what it's all about. So if you were to give us your your sort of condensed explanation of what it is, essentially speaking, what is ritual? Well, I like very much the work of an anthropologist called Roy Rappaport, and he, he goes at his definition of ritual in terms of its formal properties. And I think this is a useful way in, and his phrase, I'm just going to give it to you as a formula here, is that ritual involves a more or less invariant sequence of formal acts and utterances not entirely coded by the performers. Okay, so it's a sequence of acts, which means that it's a performance, it's something people do, okay? They do it in a certain sequence which is set down for them and has to go in the way that it goes, and it it involves uh, utterances or symbolic activities which are not just made up by the person doing the action, okay? They uh, They are part of a code which the person must follow. And if that's a little too icy and formulaic for uh, for us, we can go to the similar but a little juicier definition of the great Victor Turner. And he used to say um, that ritual is a, a again, a, a formal practice, a, a, an actual performance that you do. Uh, it is a behavior that is prescribed for occasions not given over to technological routine. That is not just ordinary um, practical stuff about everyday life that have reference to belief in mystical beings or powers. Now, I think between those two definitions, one has a little bit of the of the um, the kind of religious content of ritual, and the other one is purely formal. Somewhere between the two of them, we're identifying roughly a way to speak about ritual that I think is useful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope that's helpful. One question that comes to mind as I was listening to you then is probably an age-old question, and I imagine you've given some thought to this, but a lot of ritual, you know, for modern folks ends up seeming quite empty. And I wonder to what degree it's necessary to believe in ritual explicitly for it to function, uh, whatever that may mean, ultimately. Yes, I think that's a very important question, and you've, you've picked up exactly on one of my reservations about Victor Turner's um, uh, formula that I just gave you, because uh, belief plays a very important rich, uh, uh, part in the rituals of Christianity. That is unusual in world religion. Ritual, in most cases, is something you do. It doesn't really entail any kind of statement of belief, and if it does involve a belief system that is implicit or, or, or a, a background part of the ritual, but often not particularly foregrounded. The other thing that is mysterious about ritual that Rappaport is very clear on and that I, I think is, is clear if you think about it, if you've experienced rituals, even rituals that you don't quote-unquote believe in, is that the performance of a ritual to whatever level you are participating in it even sometimes as a kind of engaged observer, has a real effect, regardless of what you believe. (laughs) That's quite a claim. Uh, Well, um, ritual does a lot of things that affect people very strongly, quite apart from the the kind of rational or conscious part of their minds. It, It involves a lot of repetition, and I can talk more about that. It involves a kind of rhythm, 
right? And mm-hmm. that rhythm, when it is uh, expressed in a ritual, and you're part of the, even of the participants, that rhythm will begin to entrain you. Um, there are many studies of the way in which people's breathing and heartbeat actually synchronize when they're engaged in a ritual together, quite a part of what they may think about the proceeding, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, so there are some ways that that happens. And then ritual involves a lot of, um, uh, almost in every case, it involves some material object and some movement on your part. So again, there are things happening to you physically in rituals that, of course, since we are really all one system and our minds do not float high above our bodies, as Descartes thought, those things have an effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, the question of the role of belief in ritual I think is one that has to be thought about carefully on each case. In some rituals, the belief element is very important. Like we have in Christianity, the creed is actually recited in the course of the ritual. So what you believe is actually formally part of the ritual, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in other rituals, as for instance, in a, in a, uh, a yagya ritual in Hinduism or a puja, there, there's no, n- not even any, any point where that would even be thought of to happen in that ritual. So there's a big variance as to what the role of belief is. Some, Rappaport makes the point, and I'll stop about this, that some form of belief in some form of um, non-material entity is seems to be part of almost every ritual system, but it varies in intensity. Mm-hmm. Is that a fudge, Matthew? <laughs> no, no, it's all interesting. It's all interesting. You know, I'm always looking for connections here. One thing that came to my mind again when I was listening to you is there is sacrifice in what you were describing as well, in the sense of a person is required to sacrifice some degree of their own individuality and autonomy yes. mm-hmm. in order to participate to any meaningful depth in some kind of ceremony and ritual. Now, I wondered to what degree, maybe this is obvious to a lot of people, whether you know the modern self struggles so much with the idea or, or the imagination of, of what ritual might be, because we've been sort of trained as modern folks to believe that our autonomy, individuality, and our self-existing selfhood is so fundamental to our being that we have to kind of avoid that at all costs. But of course, even within Buddhism, there are different ways of imagining what it might mean to destabilize that consistency of self, which seems to be fundamental to to the Buddhist project more broadly. So what I'm going to do is jump to the next question, because it does link to part of what I've just said, which is why do societies inevitably develop rituals? And of course, there are modern day rituals, right, from ceremonies for the Queen of England with the the palace guards to rituals within the different democratic institutions, whether in the States or Britain or in Italy. And it seems that um, we, we are compelled to some degree to always seek out ritual, even as we resist it as modern folks. So what's going on there? Well, uh, simple answers we don't know. Rituals do seem very ancient. There's, there's a lot of excitement in the, in the world of archaeology and anthropology of religion about a dig in Turkey called, uh, called Gobekli Tepe, which is very ancient. Um, it's, it's the 10th, 10th millennium BCE, and it has what are clearly ritual structures. It has a temple. It has areas that could not possibly be functionable for anything else. So not only is ritual very old, but we are beginning to understand that animals have ritual. And there are problems of definition there, but the whole thing is getting very, very complex in terms of the extreme importance of ritual behavior apparently to, uh, to the survival and reproduction of species. 
So um, there are there are functions of ritual that are less um, big and abstract than that. I, I've mentioned some of them in relation to Durkheim. It it creates um, strong social ties. Uh, it uh, it defines one of its major functions, which I could talk about for a long time, is that it defines gender and gender hierarchies very clearly. A lot of rituals make it perfectly clear what is the masculine position and what is the feminine position, regardless of what you might be coming into uh, in terms of gender fluidity, into that ritual with, you will be assigned a position within that ritual that is clearly gender marked, right? Mm -hmm. So they have a lot of different functions in that way. But I think there is something deeper at work. uh, And again, this goes back to Deleuze, who, who is really... Um, is really teaching us that repetitive action of the kind that ritual makes formal uh, is a very important factor in uh, the creativity of life. Um, and I will, I'll just leave it there for the moment. Maybe we can go back to that. It's, it's a deep question, Matthew. And as I say, I don't really know that we have full answers. It's, it's, the functional answers are, uh, are kind of easy to see. Mm. But the de- the deeper answers may not be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So why do some rituals seem to be timeless then, surviving the upheavals of history and continuing to provide meaning and power to groups and societies? Academically, how have academics tried and perhaps failed, just to, to connect back to what you've just said, to understand and categorize rituals as a universal social human practice? Well, I can I can answer that, but I, my mind is still with your previous question. I just want to say one more thing about that yeah, because sure. it might it might be of interest to um, to your Buddhist listeners, right? Mm-hmm. Another thing that we're starting to understand in a in a growing field called cognitive science of religion, which is a little scientific for me, but that's okay. I'm learning from it. Uh, is that repetition of the kind that we do in ritual can be extremely conducive to various kinds of meditative states of mind. And uh, we can see that even in the use of mantra in, in, in meditation. Uh, it's, it's extremely, to put it simply and, and kind of um, anthropomorphically, it's very calming to the mind to know what's coming next. Um, the T.S. Eliot used to say that repetition, like mantra repetition in prayer, is a way of throwing in a piece of meat to distract the dog while the burglar goes out, out the back with the spoons, right? It's mm. a way of distracting the conscious mind and relaxing it so that it can give up a little of its control and allow you to drop in deeper. And so the relationship between ritual and meditation, while it's a, a complicated one, I'm some in some ways they're a little intention with each other it's also been a supportive relationship in many formations i wanted to i wanted to mention that just yeah yeah it's interesting yeah so timeless uh well timeless um it it is timeless in part because it does weird things to our sense of time <laughs> mm. um the the time of ritual you know we've all had the experience of how time passes extremely slowly in some situations and very fast in others, right? Mm-hmm. And rituals play around with that. You, you can be in a ritual and you can just feel like, this is this has gone on forever. Could somebody let me out of here? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also be dropped in a, in a way where you say, oh my goodness, is it over? Mm. Uh, I feel like I've only been here for two minutes. 
So it, it does strange things to our kind of linear instrumental time. And again, not to harp on it, but again, that's a function of repetition in part and of the rhythm, the rhythmic structure uh, of ritual. Um, but also ritual is, is precisely about stepping back for a moment between the kind of linear, practical, uh, this comes now and the next thing comes next, and uh, we're, we have to walk our march through our little life in a very linear way. So stepping back, a stepping outside of that, um, which is, is a very, very important um, way of, of being. Uh, and um, their rituals change um, because repetition does not mean without change, right? Um, and sometimes they change very fast, uh, not always by deliberation, but sometimes by deliberation. And sometimes they change very slowly. But again, their rate of change and the way in which they change does not always accord with clock time, um, to put it that way. What about if we change direction just a little bit? Mm -hmm. It leads on from what you've just said. But what do you think is the role of ritual in social formation and social disillusion? Ah, good, very good question. This, this gets to the real heart of my current project, if I can allude to that, Matthew, which I'm calling Ritual and Resistance, hmm. um, which is I'm really working to try to understand how ritual can function today as a source of, uh, as a resource uh, for us to stabilize our lives and also as a source of resistance to the, to the suicidal and biocidal course on which we seem to be embarked. And so the question of what it does on that level is, is very, um, very uppermost in my mind. I've, I've mentioned some of the things that it, it does. It creates um, these very strong social bonds. Most rituals make it perfectly clear who's in and who's out. Um, you, may, you, may, you may enter, uh, you may do certain actions, or you may not, right? There's a, there's a very clear boundary around ritual. And for that reason, it's also... I'll, often been a very uh, divisive force in society. Let's not forget that uh, ritual um, activity is a strong prelude to war in many, in many cultures. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but, but that said, it does create an enormous amount of solidarity and of, of group bonding as well. And I think, and that's important to us. I mean, that's, um, that's, that's part of what we, we need most in a sense. Um, uh, I'm losing the direction of your question. Go ahead, ask me in another way. The question, I'll repeat it and then I'll, I'll say something else. And so the original question was, what is the role of ritual in social formation and social disillusion? One of the ways I often think about ceremony is it gives us like a structure within which we can come to understand ourselves and our role and our purpose Absolutely. within right a given kind of space. So if we think about social formation, there are I mean we could we could take two directions there. One would be to say that ritual is within the basic fabric of how we participate socially in the world that we live in. The other one would be to say that there are all these sort of necessary rituals necessary in the sense that they exist already and we find ourselves sort of drawn into them and we are compelled to participate mm -hmm. and we might say that you know individuals are socially formed through those rituals whether it's the education system the democratic system the entertainment system or whatever it is i think on the other hand one of the things that's often missed is that good rituals uh, whatever that might mean <laughs> can actually aid us individually and collectively to explore forms of social disillusion which might yes. actually be yes. creative spaces where new kind of potential for experience emerges and 
you know, this is something you and I would probably see eye to eye on, which is the fact that meditation practice in the West is often sort of given as an individualistic practice. And I, for one, you know, as somebody who's navigated both Buddhism and shamanism for, for many, many years, have seen that there's a lot missing from that individualistic notion of practice. And it can be quite self-referential and actually some of the most powerful transformation that might take place in terms of the disillusion of selfhood or the disillusion of our attachment to our models of being in the world actually can happen more powerfully within group activity. And one of those is ritual and ceremony. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Thank you. That that really, of course, that is a place where we think alike. It accords with, with my experience. For all that, that Durkheim is right at that ritual can reinforce existing hierarchies, it can also scramble them in some very interesting ways. I have a, a funny story about that. I'll try to give you the short form. In an old parish that I, I used to attend years ago in my hometown, um, the, the priest had introduced into the mass a point where, which is mandated by Vatican II, a point where everyone in the congregation turns to everyone else and says, peace be with you. Mm. Well, fine, except that he had a lady come to him in high indignation, and say, I can't do that. I'm sitting next to a neighbor that I haven't spoken to in years and years and years. You don't want me to overcome that and shake her hand, do you? Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so ritual, and we, I think we've all had the experience of, of being caught up in a ritual which reorganizes our sense of who our neighbor is, of who is proximate to us, of whose experience is lying close to us and can shake up some of the predetermined roles that we come in with into a ritual situation. I think there's that um, on, a more, on a more obviously uh, sort of political note, if I may go there. Mm -hmm. There's a way in which if a ritual makes a hierarchy perfectly clear, again, let's take the example of the Roman Catholic Mass, and perfectly clear that there's a gender hierarchy there, okay? Mm -hmm. Priests priest can do this, women can't do this. Okay, fine. That's, um, you know, politically re regressive in every way that I can possibly express. But it is also explicit. And therefore, you can contest it explicitly with great force. Right. So mm. there is, is a kind of function of ritual that in, in just bringing to mirroring for us what our, what our social arrangements are, uh, that frees us from their, their just being unconscious and allows us to renegotiate them, which I think is, is an extremely important thing to bear in mind in terms of resistance. I, I, another obvious and more secular example is the, the famous um, uh, Olympics with the black power symbol. Uh, back in Mexico in the, was it in the 60s, where the three uh, black athletes held up their, their, uh, their hands in a gesture of black power um, mm. on the stand right? There's a ritual that is designed to establish certain relationships. It also provides the perfect platform for contesting them. <laughs> so it can go both ways. But I think you're speaking also, if I can just go on a minute, you're speaking of a more subtle and deeper uh, effect of a ritual which can begin to overcome this narrow self-construction that we have and open us to um, to collectives that are also not just vacuously universal. Let me leave that there for the moment. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, each of these uh, questions opens up really, you know, multiple cans of worms. <laughs> it so I'm just glad I set together a set of questions that we can just follow and keep us on track. And I think the next one fits in nicely with the second point you've just made there, which is the role of desire. Looking at ritual from a big picture view, you can see that a lot of ritual really is about both freeing and managing desire, depending on the tradition you're part of. So can you speak a little bit to that? Yes, I, I certainly can. That, that's also a big question. But again, I think it's one that all of us who, who've been through uh, ritual can, can experience and remember and think about. Um, ritual, there's a, there's a line of thought um, coming from Walter Benjamin, a uh, very interesting scholar, A.K. Thompson, is on this, where he's saying sort of ritual can create a strong sense of a fantasy reality, an ideal reality, which can call forth a lot of desire. Um, we can almost get a, uh, a, a utopian moment sometimes in ritual, a moment of feeling at one with the people around us caught up in a higher purpose, um, and our desire is both evoked and, uh, and validated by that. Um, and he's also, as a, as a, a person who's a, a good Marxist and concerned about social justice, he's, he's saying that can also be a great mystification. Uh, it really can be both things. Uh, I, I think that's an interesting point of view, but here is a place where I really do go back to Lacan. I think ritual um, does evoke and, and manage our desire to some extent. Um, it, it, uh, it pulls it up and it channels it. I mean, think, for instance, of the marriage ritual right? Um, it, it creates an incredibly beautiful erotic field, not just for the two people getting married, but for the, the people gathered. And at the same time, it doesn't really stop there. It doesn't stop at the fantasy level, because it involves a, a kind of cycling through the three Lacanian modes of the imaginary, which is what I'm talking about now, the symbolic, that is the the, the rational meaning of the ceremony, which is that these two people are now going to get hitched and that is going to be a life commitment and that is going to have uh, real world implications and has going to have to do with power and money and status and a lot of other um, kind of symbolic things that are important um, and also can take over if you let them take over. And it also has this very kind of of material dimension with the rings and the kiss and a sense of groundedness in the real. Uh, and desire is important in all of those, but it's, it's differently modulated in, in each of those phases. I, again, we could talk so much about this. I'm sorry to if this is a little confusing, but it's part of the way that I think about it. Mm -hmm. No, it's fine. Have you thought much at all about uh, the role of desire in a Buddhist tantric practice? <laughs> 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 I was just saving that for you, right, for the right moment. I was saving that for the right moment, yeah. Yeah, and I'm thinking in particular of, of these uh, these uh, archetypal figures like Vajrayogini, you know, that are very, very sexual. Uh, I have. <laughs> You're reminding me of um, a friend of mine who used to say, I have some ideas, but I disagree with them. <laughs> oh, great, yeah. Well, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> well, you know, there are sort of, of two schools of thought about desire. There is, a, in terms of ritual, there's the great Chinese uh, Confucian philosopher, Zheng Ji, who, for whom ritual, he, he's the one who called ritual the school of ethics. Mm. And for him, 
ritual was the primary way of evoking and regulating desire so that society would be orderly and stable. Mm. I mean, at its worst, it was state religion. Okay. Right. It was deeper and better than that, but that's where it goes, right? You know. Um, and then there's the kind of there, there's the opposite. Of, well, I guess there are sort of three positions. One is that also that ritual completely defunds individual desire; that it it um, it 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 removes desire, if you want, uh, and that is a one we'll leave aside for the moment. And then there's a third that where the ritual is is part of both the evoking and the creation of the desire and its deconstruction, if I could put it that way. And it's my understanding at a great distance, I have no expertise here, either theoretical or practical, that that is the position of Tantra in general, that, uh, that desire is, as it were, the raw material, it's the fuel uh, that ritual kind of creates a form for so that it can become, um, that it can take shape and it can take form and it can do real work, uh, work of both purification, which is an extremely important aspect of ritual, purification of um, what we could call illusion in Buddhist terms or sin in Western terms, uh, but also of, of direction and almost a, um, a, a teleology toward a goal. And that goal being liberation and enlightenment. Um, that's the best I can do with that at the moment, Matthew. Perhaps you have thoughts about this. Mm-hmm. Back at you. <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, I actually think that uh, someone like uh, Chogyam Trungpa, who was a, a pretty n- notorious figure, who had a lot to say about Tantra in the West and wrote several books on it. I mean, his take was the one that I came across when I was about 19, and that's always stuck with me, and it's a slightly psychologized view. And that also contrasted with some first-hand experience I had in working with the Gelugpa traditions yes. of mm-hmm. Tibetan Buddhism, which are the most conservative and perhaps least interesting in my view these days had a flavor of both of those different types of approaches to it. And it was interesting because the sort of view that uh, a figure like Trungpa conjures up is one of this sort of uh, exciting, visceral world of, of risk and of opportunity and of danger and excitement. And he would see the tantric world as being one that's not just captured by ritual, but one that perceives the world in a very specific ritualized way in which it comes alive. Mm-hmm. And we use the raw materials, not only of desire, but of emotions more broadly for navigating the experiences of life in order to access some kind of liberational possibility. The Galukpa guys instead, at least in my experience of working with, I think, uh, three different traditions, highly conservative, rather boring, a little bit like going to church on a Sunday. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry sorry to put it that way, considering no, your no, interest, but uh, very dry, very dull, very, what should I say, moderated by the norms of the text and chanting and a very little sense of the, the person within ritual. I don't quite know how that relates to some of what you've said, because I think that that remains as a kind of interesting question about what the purpose of uh, ritual should be, can be, might be, and whether Trungpa was merely sort of taking his own interpretation of it all, marrying it to the modern ideal of the individual, and then repackaging it in a sort of psychologized model. And whether, you know, there are other teachers from Tibetan Buddhism and the tradition that he was part of that would actually sanctify that or, or, or say, yes, we, we agree with that line of practice too, or whether it's really him doing his own thing. But that kind of approach to 
Buddhist Tantra resonates far more strongly with the kinds of experiences I've had in different shamanic traditions. Yes. And it's there where uh, that the excitement is for me and the, the mm-hmm. potential and uh, the sort of thing that kind of resonates with the big themes that we all face, right? Like death and, you know, sexual desire and yeah. material desire and repulsion and, and understanding those kinds of powerful emotions as, mm-hmm. as, as being conduits for some kind of practice that can both be mm-hmm. explored individually, but also in a group in a highly ritualized manner. Yes, I, yes, just yes to all of that. This, this gets to, um, to something I, I wanted to be sure uh, that I that I said here because it's I think it's the direction that I want to move in with this material. I'm with you on that. I mean, I think about um, Chogam Trumpa Rinpoche. All that, all that is to be said there is there is no tradition that I know of, however tantric, that doesn't stipulate ethics. <laughs> <laughs> well done for mentioning that. <laughs> so let's let's just lay for that those out, in the right? know, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> including yeah, including yeah. including all the shamanic traditions of which I'm aware. Um, right. The, yeah. The, the content of that ethic might might differ, but we would all agree. Uh, you don't have to be a, a, a complex philosopher to know that um, truthfulness, compassion and non-harm are, are crucial. So mm. Yes, <laughs> that just, yes, agreed. As we can agree on that. But I think this this uh, this kind of more fermenting, this more productive, this more highly energized form of ritual is is part of what's calling us today. And it's calling our attention partly in this is a whole long story that we don't have time to get into, but it fascinates me. Partly it's a return of the repressed because of the extreme uh, discountenance and suppression of ritual in capitalism for shorthand in modernism in, in modern capitalism and that has complicated roots it's partly the reformation which reacted so strongly against the ritual life of the catholic church for many good reasons it's partly kantian enlightenment it's partly what are the requirements of a market economy right in mm-hmm. many ways a life of ritual is a life of expenditure uh, this is a Bataille point, a, a life where you, you know, you burn up a lot of things, you have a big feast, you waste a lot of food, you dance around and waste energy, you're not working, okay? <laughs> and those things are, um, are not okay in a, in a high capitalist, modernist world. Uh, and they're very okay in wherever we want to go. So I'm, I'm with you on that. And I'm also with you... Um, I'm going to say just two things in, in brief. One of the things that is challenging today is we all want, a lot of us want, a ritual, ritual life. We do not want it to carry the baggage of the past. So we are in a state of ritual invention and experimentation. And that's fine, except for one crucial point. The rituals that really work have some element of repetition, tradition, and canonicity to them. And we've all also been in these awful made-up rituals that make you want to, you know, um, just (laughs) wince. You're thinking, this is not working. You know, I'm just embarrassed. I want to get out of here. Um, And that is because we're not really very adept yet at finding um, a a ritual tradition that can really support us. And I'm going to be arguing both in terms of our spiritual and psychological needs and our political needs, that the place to look for that is in indigenous traditions. 
And we can have a whole conversation about cultural appropriation, which I'm so tired of, but I'll have it if you want to have it. But I, I do think that politically, ethically, and psychologically, um, there is a resource there. And I think of the, of the incredible importance of ritual at Standing Rock, um, uh, the, the protest movement against the Dakota Pipeline in the United States, um, where uh, there was a, was a massive act of civil disobedience to try to stop that pipeline, but that every single day was rooted in intense ritual. Every day began with the women who had gathered there doing a grief ritual in the morning. As, as part of the, of the day's activities. And uh, the councils began with ritual practice. And it became a source of, again, bonding and solidarity and also of new thinking. It enabled people to make new relationships with one another and new relationships to their understanding of their cosmology. Um, all kinds of change came out of that. So maybe I'm taking that question in a direction you didn't quite intend, but um, yes to the, the tantric direction of ritual. Um, yes, I think that uh, the resource or the place to look is in, in and among indigenous traditions. And yes, we're in a period of experimentation where the understanding of our world and of the ritual we're working with is changing. Um, so it's uh, it's a famous, interesting, and dangerous time. I don't know if I'm convinced by the one claim you make about the need to draw on or utilize, um, let's say, native traditions and so forth. Um, not because of the cultural appropriation. I think at the end of the day, I would agree with you. It's often a pretty boring direction to head down, and it's amazing how often it actually excludes people that have carried those traditions for so long. Yes. Right? You know, it's just yeah. the obvious point that often doesn't get mentioned. Aside from that, I think having been involved in so many different shamanic traditions myself, I mean, I see, I see some inherent problems in that. One of the questions that, that always has to be fundamental is negotiation and. I think cultural appropriation is one concept, okay. I think the other one is just basic human decency and respect based on open communication, clarity and negotiation more generally. Too many folks, at least in the shamanic world, have kind of come out the other side of having tried that, say, not, not necessarily a form of cultural appropriation most specifically, but kind of getting caught up in dressing themselves up and pretending to be something they were not that's led many of them to the sort of try and dig up these non-existent roots of uh, Celtic ceremonies or mm -hmm. ancient Greek ceremonies and yeah. so forth. That often has perhaps led to some of the sort of fakery or superficiality that you've spoken of. But I think yes. I would argue that that is actually a reflection of lack of maturity or lack of time invested into imagining possibilities within those reconstructions rather than them being a dead end that perhaps we couldn't try. I would agree that there needs to be some kind of link to something that pre-exists. I would certainly agree with that. But I would also tend to say that there is a strong need for people to, to continue to invest more long-term in an imaginative possibility of reconstructing ceremonies outside of the norms of the, the capitalist subject, which is part of the problems as well, right? When we see... Yes. I mean, if you go online and you look up shamanism, you'll get pages and pages and pages of money-making folks, primarily from the States, who are pretending to be this, that, and the other still. Yep. Because of that, I think 
it inevitably means that what's leaking into every aspect of the contemporary recreation of ceremony, whatever that might end up being, is these implicit assumptions about who the person is, what the role of ceremony should be, and the kind of transactional nature of how that's managed between the person selling goods and the subject who's supposed to be usually therapeutically saved or enhanced by engaging in that kind of practice. The political's interesting, but I would also suggest that this kind of stuff at its best exists outside of the political realm, although I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying I think I think they're separate things. It's not a surprise that so many rituals within native traditions are kind of, you know, held by, protected and honoured by the elders of those traditions because they've got the experience, right? They've got it in their bodies. They've got it to the point where they've lived it enough within the community without those utilitarian and transactional goals to actually understand the simplicity of it, the grace of it, and the power that it can actually uh, bring to a community. But also perhaps they know some of the failings, right? If we were to Mm -hmm. say something about Mm -hmm. North American tribes, we've seen the problems with alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Some of the native uh, elders have tried to provide a context in which their ceremonies would help and they haven't always been successful and so there's a lot going on there but that that's probably the point I'd want to throw in there. All I can say is I agree with every single word you have just uttered and I'm not just saying that. Um, it's, <laughs> uh, it's what I'm trying to point to is uh, the the other difficulty, which is the attempt in in work that I respect, for instance, like the work of Joanna Macy. I don't know if you know her. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, uh, to um, to invent rituals that don't have that sense of lived experience, that sense of of um, the 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 development or the consciousness of the practitioner that knows exactly how to move in that ritual, which is really the product of a process of reflection and refinement over time. Uh, you, you know, you, I'm saying exactly what you're saying, just in, an, in a slightly different form. And what I like to say about that is that we, we really need to remember that ritual is an art form, mm. right? It requires aesthetics. And like every other great art form, you know, you, you, you can't just do it because you got up in the morning and thought, oh, hey, gee whiz, I think I'll paint a picture. You know, uh, you really need training. You really need experience. You really need to have lived it for a long time to, to generate it in a way that, that, will, that, will, um, that will be productive, whatever that may mean. And um, I'm, I'm saying we should go and talk to the people who, who know how to do that, right? And <laughs> learn a thing or two from them and learn that it is not a, a manner, matter of transaction. It's not a matter of mechanics. It's not even a matter of having a goal for your ritual and accomplishing that goal. All good rituals end up doing all kinds of things to people that were not in the script, right? You know, mm. uh, and, um, that's 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 the way in which I approach that problem. It is my sort of sort of trying to say, and I think this is a big problem. With oh, we could talk endlessly about this whole global um, shamanism racket, uh, which I, um, I I really find very difficult to tolerate myself, and I'm sure you do. Uh, but I think that one of the things about it that is a sure tell about its superficiality and its uh, proneness to, to be entirely marketized, entirely caught up into the capitalist model, is that the aesthetics of it are often so bad, right? Mm. The scripts of those r- rituals are full of cliché. The music is god-awful. 
<laughs> I mean, you know, I know we're, we're not expected to make these value judgments as anthropologists, but just as somebody who's concerned that ritual be be a source of sanctuary for people um, uh, and that it that it work to enable us to think and, and experience the world in a different way. Uh, the aesthetics of it have to be attended to in a profound way. And the, the, the shamanic traditions that I most like and that I've learned the most from have a very strong aesthetic uh, to them. And, um, and, I, and I like that. And some of that is just because they, they, they attend to and draw upon the discipline and practice of people who've done them for a long time. And um, um, that's my little story about that. But I, I completely agree with you. As I say, we're in a very, we're in a, a kind of um, cooking pot of, of ritual experimentation. Mm. And to figure out what works and what doesn't is, is a matter of, of profound import, and it requires a lot of discernment. Uh, agreed, and it's, it's not an easy line of inquiry and exploration to, to navigate. The one thing I would say is that I tend to think we need more, not less, in the sense that yes. if we're going to develop, let's say we, what, what, what does that mean? Okay, let me be a little bit more specific. In like a tradition of Western Buddhism, if there was the desire to invent some form of Western tantra that was not just explicitly taken from something like Tibetan Buddhism, I think it would be a huge undertaking that might be utterly impossible. But if some principles of tantric ideals were taken, they could form the basis of the invention of a kind of ritual or practice or ceremonial form that would be quite distinct and quite unique. And at that point, I think it would have to draw not only on the fantasy of, of what a thing should be was once lost at some point in the past, but would actually have to self-consciously, to some degree, harness some of what we've developed in the West that's quite unique to us, right? So it might be, you know, what can we do with the, the thought of Lacan? Could that be integrated into a ceremony or ritual, mm -hmm, yes. right? What would it mean to take some of those more esoteric almost forms of Western psychology and philosophy? Yeah. And could mm -hmm. they lend themselves to the construction of a very, very simple rituals and practices that a group might engage in? And again, I think that if I were to tie this all into a kind of vision of what's taken place since the beginning of the last century, you know, the arrival of the, the baby boomers and then Generation X, and now we've got the millennials, clearly we're seeing attempts at different types of construction of meaning making that have within them structures which we could argue are ritualistic. And yet they haven't been done necessarily explicitly to that end. And therefore they end up creating both possibilities, but new kinds of forms of social dysfunction. Maybe, you know, we could draw within that context from some of the experience of elders of different traditions if they're willing to share their wisdom too. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's all very complex. And uh, I hear what you're saying. And at the same time, I think there has to be a more simple, straightforward way of at least experimenting with some of this um, that doesn't end up with this sort of superficial ceremony light version that you, you complained about. Yes, I know. I know. I, yes, I, I agree. I think one thing that is that we haven't talked about is uh, the relationship of ritual to the future, um, as well as to the, fat, the past. And this right. is something that I'm, I'm attending to very deeply in my, in my studies with the Andean Pacos Lequero people, because they hold the view that ritual has one of its major functions is the capacity to envisage and call in a, a future 
for for the human world, for the living species of the world, not just the human world, but for the living species of the world, uh, through mm-hmm. the ritual, actually, to to form that and call it into form through the ritual practice, and um, that you know that strikes me as an urgent need, and it strikes me also as op- opening the door to all kinds of the kind of creativity you're talking about because it would need to draw upon a huge amount of the experience of the West, which is, as we say, not chopped liver, right? (laughs) Uh, Both in terms of understanding the the dangers of ritual, because one thing about the the line of thought, uh, the anti-ritual line of thought in the West, right through the, the Frankfurt School, is that it does call attention to real dangers of ritual, right? Mm-hmm. And um, also to uh, things that are in the esoteric tradition of the West that are, are very powerful forms of ritual, invented, but invented in a way that is extremely productive. I'm, I'm thinking of some of the, of the open source work of the Order of the Golden Dawn, which has some quite articulate thought about ritual in it and some beautiful rituals as well. So uh, it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's just a fascinating and important subject Matthew, and for me, it takes place um, against the background of of the sixth extinction. So I wanted to get that in here because I want to talk about in my work about um, if ritual is not helping us attend to these these massive and unthinkable um, challenges we face, then why do it, right? And I believe I believe it does. And I think it might be a kind of missing piece for us, both in Western Buddhism and in the traditions that I that I operate in. Mm-hmm. So that's my thoughts. It's interesting how the deity forms such a key role in the two traditions you've just mentioned, and and how abstract that is, uh, how abstract both can be in many senses. And I keep thinking uh, throughout our conversation so far of this distinction between transcendence and imminence again, because, you know, what would it mean to engage in a form of ceremony or ritual that was uh, within a a frame for understanding oneself and the world that was imminent to this Mm -hmm. physical earth, the physical plane, and the kind of extinction process that we're going through that you mentioned. And at that point, I can see why you might be more partial towards different forms of of native traditions and and believe that we should be informed by them in this regard. Because it's the topic that drives this podcast in many ways, I am fascinated and interested in the communal, the shared experience, and the duty and role that practices have, both in forming and informing and deconstructing our experiences of selfhood and our thoughts and beliefs, but also in the the same token towards the outside, right? Towards the social, towards participation. And on the one hand, I would agree with you that that's certainly a priority, or at least could be, and would most wisely perhaps be. But on the other hand, I'm also aware of how you know how problematic that is in the traditions I I end up often talking about in the podcast. So, and, and, and it's funny as well, because if, if I think about what you've just said and riff on it a little bit, if we're talking about a lot of ceremony and ritual. As I hinted at before, one of my perspectives on it is it allows an individual and a group to inhabit spaces that are unknown or disruptive yes. or outside the, the common norms of, of whatever passes for social normality in an age that a person lives in. I'm also aware at the same time, just to put the juxtaposition in there, that so many rituals that we end up constructing and you end up being quite trite. And I would mm-hmm. uh, reiterate that point I made before. I think part of the problem there is just because so much of contemporary alternative spirituality has ended up being uh, rebranded within the key of self-serving individualism and neocapitalism. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you get 
underneath that and you disrupt that, then all sorts of creative possibilities would emerge quite quickly. And I can't help but think that, you know, um, one kind of ritual practice that we could all benefit from would be something uh, not done, what's the word I'm looking for, tritely, but instead of manifesting, let's say, as in your imagination, as the deity Vajrayogini, or seeing yourself in front of, you know, Mary or Jesus or God, but doing the same thing with, with animals or the rocks or the ah, trees and so absolutely. forth, right? And that's something you're obviously going to be familiar with. But again, it's one of those those kinds of practices which has tended to be closed off from the more rational, modern person who looks at that kind of stuff, and in many ways rightly, and just scoffs at it and says, what the hell, that's new age hippie bullshit. I don't want to be part of that. But it could obviously be recast in a key of impending need for us to start shifting our priorities and, and developing not just real physical relationships with the earth, but these these imaginative relationships which which fire off certain kinds of uh, experience of selfhood or, or or of being in the world more broadly as opening to that world. There, you know, there's room for both appro- not appropriating but drawing on these native resources if they'll share them with us, but also saying, well, how could we do that ourselves in a way that doesn't serve that you know narcissistic selfhood, but actually wakes us up to the fact that these other living beings, sentient and unsentient are part of our our internal and external geography. I completely agree, of course. I think that actually um, one of the things that that I think is is vital to ritual invention in our time is to get it down to earth. <laughs> right. Exactly. In every yeah. sense, to get it out of the transcendent, out of in the in the worst sense, um, out of the abstract, and get it down to earth. And we don't need a, a weatherman to say which way the wind blows. You know, mm. you can just step outside and figure out which way the wind blows. And uh, I I certainly also think that it's part of the undoing of our uh, of our ego and our and our con- constituted marketized ego to uh, attend profoundly to animal life at the moment um, this is is something a number of us that I work around with are saying um, this of course we're, we're looking at mass extinction and, and a level of suffering that most of us can barely even bother to think about in a day. Mm. But this is also a practice. This is a practice of reorganizing our consciousness in relation to the world of other beings who do not operate in our terms and whom we have a, a, a load of responsibility toward uh, that, that is, is overwhelming. I'm not putting this very clearly because it, it, it galvanizes my feelings at a deep level. But I do think that uh, conceptually, even in terms of thinking about ritual, one of the ways to be guided in ritual life is to say, is this ritual down to earth? Is this ritual engaging with the presence of other sentient beings around us, non-human sentient beings around us? And is it doing that in a in a respectful and ethical way? Um, uh, yeah. The great the great um, we have a, a, a an Indian activist Sherry Mitchell in my part of the world who is a, a wonderful teacher in this respect. And one of the things that she pointed out to me was that the uh, a ritual that I was doing involving um, involving an offering that was to be put into water. I was using some materials in that ritual that are toxic, mm. right? Mm-hmm. I went, duh, you know, 
she said, no, you know, don't, don't use newspaper that has, um, that has colored print on it. That's very toxic. You don't know what the tipping point is, right? It's just a little small thing you're doing, but you don't know what the tipping point is. Mm -hmm. And uh, don't use pieces of metal that you don't want to be leaking into that water. It's, again, a very obvious point, but that's that kind of attention to the, the earth practicality of the ritual that I think also has a lot to teach us mm. as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think you articulated your point back then very well instead. And uh, again, uh, listeners might get fed up with us hearing this, but I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> well, they should call in and object and then we can, have a, we, we, we can argue about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But in fact, I mean, part of my, my line of questioning is always to try and anticipate some of the, the skepticism that will yes, emerge inevitably you. towards this. But um, that's again why, you know, in this being aimed towards many Buddhists, but not only, um, to me, it's, it's obvious and I'm aware that it won't be to many listeners, that the notion of selfhood, which is obsessed about by many Western Buddhists who take Buddhism very seriously, whether within a tradition or some kind of modern reformulation of it, it's amazing how so often that excludes the animal world and the, mm -hmm. the mineral world and the plant world. As you rightly noticed, I mean, you know, we, we can't afford to exclude them. There's very specific forms of selfhood that are constructed within that ignorance and that great forgetting of what surrounds us. And yes, in terms of ritual in a very simplified way, which may have some link to Protestantism, I don't know, you'll tell me. If we think about the breath, breath is the primal thing that keeps us within relationship to the world around us and that, you know, allows us to, to to have this experience of being in a world which is full of beings, animate and inanimate. One of the, the simplest rituals I know of is, is simply to breathe anything into yourself, right? And yes. allow that to disrupt or like almost, uh, I'll use another verb actually, to sort of um, like deep tissue massage is one way you might think about it, mm -hmm. you know, allowing the other, since that's one of those trendy terms we keep hearing about so often and is so often obsessed with, you know, the human species. In fact, it becomes more interesting, at least for me in many contexts, to say, can I allow the other to penetrate my world and disrupt my sense of self as well? Yes. And, you know, if we've got meditators out there using their breath, why not use that breath to breathe in not just the suffering of humans and animals in the abstract, but also just, just the fabric of those beings, right? Yes, yes. I mean, really carnal, material, yeah. lived stuff, that, yep. you know, and yep. it, it doesn't yep. have to be romanticized. We don't have to project the human into it. We can just actually allow it to be a process of con consistent and constant discovery, which actually chips away at our sort of species arrogance, which I think unless you go out there deliberately and question that kind of thing, is always there in the background, is always articulating our gaze so that we only see partially. And my goodness, couldn't a lot of Buddhists just spend less time being so obsessed with mind and with hum you know the human experience of not having a soul? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> exactly. And I think the other thing is, in, in relation to animals in particular, it's it's really, it, it, we aren't just doing this in order to uh, do some advanced practice of deconstructing the self. We're actually doing it to open up imaginative possibilities mm. for new forms of life. And animals have been teaching people those things for the whole time of our co-evolution on the planet. Mm. So not only imagining the suffering of an animal, which of course we must know as we must know the suffering of all sentient beings, but also saying, okay, what do you have to teach me? What do you have to teach me, squirrel? What, what in the way you move, in the way you gaze, in the way you look, what can I learn that will take me out of 
my narcissistically constructed capitalist self mm. and into a way of being that actually opens up potential. It opens up new ways of seeing. I mean, for any like Native American person, this would be duh, you know? <laughs> I mean, um, and I just am reverting to that to remind us to be a little humble because what I'm saying is by no means a piece of wisdom that um, is invented today, right? No, uh, of course not. Yeah. Even even the whole tradition of, of Qigong or of uh, a lot of yoga poses are derived from close observation and interaction with animals. And they bring a wisdom into the body that we cannot access in any other way, um, which is why their extinction is not just a terrible shame, but an incredible deprivation for us, right? Yeah, 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 I agree. So many of the big themes that have come up in the, you know, the two, three years that I've been doing this podcast, it's uh, so much of this is is really the, the consequences and the legacy of modernity. Yes. And, you know, the construction over what, at least for us in the West, primarily 2000 years of, of, of an imagined selfhood, which has been developed over a very, very long time, which has had very, very negative consequences in terms of this, uh, this notion of transcendence of the body, the physical and the rest towards this heavenly realm of abstraction. Mm -hmm. and that, run, that runs through so many things still. I mean, you know, I, I was still thinking the other day and then I had a conversation with a philosopher friend here in Italy. It just, we ended up having a conversation we've had many, many times, but it's it's just amazing how stubborn ideas can be when they've been around for so long mm -hmm. and are so deeply wed to the fabric of, of everything that we do as a society. But the, the, the fact that God you know, Nietzsche told us that God is dead, but my God, if we, we still failed fully to understand the consequences of that kind of understanding, yes, we're still locked in that kind of difficulty of going beyond our vision of the world yep. as being very much centered on ourselves. And I would probably agree with you in this sense. I don't know, you didn't really say explicitly, but you kind of hinted at it, which is that we, we have an, a, an impending and incredible need, as you did deliberately say, which is to shift our attention from the above and the below and towards ourself and our inner world, towards the, you know, the planes of existence that we inhabit on this earthly realm of material beings. And there's an urgency there. And I, I would tend to think that ritual and ceremony have to be part of that. But I think we both need to find a way to communicate with traditions that have kept those things alive. But we do also have to reimagine something or, or create something anew and afresh, because I just don't yes. think otherwise it will capture the collective imagination in a way that would be sufficiently um, functional, but uh, in order to attract enough people to participate in it. And I think that's perhaps part of what was interesting, if, if I may say so. This is the, the sense I had in when you were describing the, the Spirit Rock protests, right? There was mm -hmm, a kind yes. of, there was both, you know, pre-modernity, modernity and something new happening Absolutely. all at once. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and as you, you seem to be hinting at, there was an opening of a possibility there beyond, not just sort of beyond as in after, but both within, captured by and emerging from the collective grief and the expressions that were made there as well. Yes, I mean, I think we need to, to, to just constantly be aware that we are in a completely different situation from any indigenous tradition ever in the past and any indigenous tradition right now. We are in a global matrix, which is entirely different from anything in the past. So you have uh, um, Tibetan 
monks interacting with the Andean uh, wisdom keepers and having a direct exchange about their relative traditions, which has a lot to do with working with mountains, right? You know, mm-hmm. yep. there is, there's a global sense within these traditions that is, is different from the past. And we're in a different situation as, as far as we know in the course of the, our lives as sentient beings on the planet. We've never faced extinction as we do now. Right. Um, obviously, ritual life is going to have to rise to this occasion. And that's what I think you're stressing and what I'm, I'm getting benefit from your corrective for me on this is that, yes, um, the, and we need to preserve the original spark and the creativity that comes from being willing to go outside the box, including the box of rituals we have inherited. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can do that in part, though, to revert to, revert to my, my tradition by looking at instances of great ritual innovation that have mattered in the world, right? Mm. You know, uh, if we look, for instance, at the Eucharist, um, there's a basic ritual that uh, went on in the time of Jesus around a feast held on the, a couple of nights before Passover that was essentially a ritual for a little study group that involved blessing wine and bread, right? Mm-hmm. And he, tra- he took that existing ritual and transformed it, both in form and in content, right? And initiated a whole rich- new ritual order with a very complicated relationship to the past ritual order, but with incredible innovation, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's finding that, that opening toward innovation that we're looking for, that line of flight, as Deleuze would say. Mm. Um, and uh, what I'm saying is I don't, need, we th- need, I don't think we need to think of that as, in, as a contradiction to rejoicing in and participating in and being stabilized by repetitive, repeated, established ritual. I think we're going to need that in terms of the chaos we're going to, to face Mm-hmm. In the next, in the next very short time. Um, so I'm like both and here, Matthew. You know me. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> well, that works for me too. You know, that works for me okay. too. I, ju- I, I, I kind of wanted to push that point, not not to contradict your point, you but know, because you know what I see more broadly, and again thinking about the kind of post-traditional and the non-approaches that have been woven through so much of the discourse that that's come up in these podcast episodes is that. I notice often a sort of form of uh, timidity or shyness about yes. experimentation mm-hmm. with innovation. And I think that we're in an age in which the the capacity for humans to kind of trust their instincts or or trust their, I don't want to use the word innate because that will get me into trouble, but let's say that the wealth of, of a potential that's within humans on a good day is often sort of doubted. Um, we live in a kind of age of... Uh, of lack of, of faith almost in our human yeah, capacity yeah. to imagine possibilities beyond the discourse of our age and the historic discourses, which we, we're still sort of dragging around in many ways. And, and what I want to see is, you know, more innovation, more experimentation. Yeah, but, but just like I said, done within a key in which we might get just enough maturity, not, not completely there, um, because we're different ages with different experience and so forth, but enough of it to say, well, we could actually start to leave behind that sort of neoliberal self, which has been a burden and mm-hmm. has sort of channeled so much of the, the creativity and alternative forms of spirituality, religion and practice in the last century, back into the capitalist dream of just autonomous selves making money, 
and being functional and so forth. And I, you know, I, I think we just need to hear that a little bit more often. I agree. Uh, I agree. You know, we, we can do it. There is All potential right. and we could trust ourselves just a little bit more. I, I, I am going to uh, incorporate that teaching into what I say about this. Thank you. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> it's actually very much in line with what the the Andean um, wisdom keepers are saying and teaching right now, which is we can do this. We can dream this in together. You know, yeah. uh, we we just have to let go of of some of some old habits that are in our way and, and some new habits, right? And add I some mean, new ones. Know. Absolutely. The one, the ones that are still lingering from the last century are relatively new for us. And uh, yeah, yeah. But you know, if anything's become clear on this podcast, is that you know the tools are there. I mean, the my tools God, are there. The tools they really are. are. They really are, and they're incredibly abundant and incredibly fun. So. <laughs> oh, well, that's. <laughs> it's, I'm glad you mentioned fun there at the end. Fun People forget important. that one, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, and fun is you know really fun. It's 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 funny. It's this sort of counter counter to the fun to even talk about it. But fun and clowning is a very important part of ritual and good God, we need it. <laughs> oh, I couldn't agree more. Yes, the old uh, sacred Hayoka figure, right? Yep, absolutely. You know, the yep. coyote, the fox and all the rest. Yeah. Well, look, Cleo, we started a little bit late. We're running out of time. Is there anything you wanted to say before we finish up today? No, just uh, first of all, that just to say that this project of reimagining Buddhism, as I hear it from you and from my friend Glenn Wallace, and of course his work, uh, is just incredibly exciting to me. And I, I commend you for the range and the intensity of what you're doing. I think it's it's fabulous. So let me just put in a plug. <laughs> Thank you. That's very sweet of you. We don't get a lot of that actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there some of it comes in privately, but uh, I, I said to Glenn the other day that if you if you guys continue on revisioning your Buddhism in this way and at this level, damn, I might have to become a Buddhist. So. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, we can make space for you up on the the Buddhist so tree. Right. <laughs> Claire, thanks. I'm glad we finally got this going on. I, I figured we'd have a fun conversation. Thank you for your patience, Matthew. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. And uh, let's hope listeners uh, found this an interesting and slightly unusual and divergent conversation as well. And uh, we'll see how things unfold from here. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Saddle